Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Muslim in the Room podcast. Your host, Asma Hussein, Iman Ahmed, and Zainab Zafar are three Canadian Muslim women. Every week, they will discuss issues that are relevant to the celebration, growth, and empowerment of Muslim women in the West. They will confront some of the social issues affecting us through thought-provoking topics. We would love for you to join us. You can do that by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. But for now, join us and let's get into today's episode. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Welcome to Muslim in the Room. Today, we will be speaking about incarceration, topic very seldom spoken about in the Muslim community. The challenges, the struggles that come along with incarceration for families and young ones quite often ignored and disregarded. And I'm really, really excited to actually tell you that we have an amazing guest speaker who's going to address this topic with us today. And we will be chatting with Melissa McClutchy about her life about her community involvement and about also the experiences that she had with incarceration in terms of the Muslim community in North America, particularly in Canada. Welcome, Melissa. We are so happy to have you with us here. For those of you who are tuning in and aren't familiar with Melissa's work, Melissa is a third-year PhD candidate in the Department of Sociology at York University. She was born in Trinidad and Tobago and immigrated to Toronto with her family at the age of four. In her early 20s, she reverted to Islam and is now a wife and a mother of two girls. Melissa is a strong advocate for prison reform and abolition and uses her experiences of being in a 20-year relationship with a man who has a history of imprisonment to guide her research. In 2020, she completed my tax-funded research study exploring the experiences of racialized women supporting an imprisoned loved one during the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome, Melissa. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. I'm so excited to be on the show. I wish, honestly, like it would have been so great to meet in person, you know, but uh, alhamdulillah, Absolutely. we're here anyway. Like, mashallah, look at the bio. Like, honestly, when I read that, I said, mashallah, like mashallah. we have this superb sister here, mashallah. And I'm really excited that we're going to learn from such an amazing person who has a vast amount of experience. So we'll start off, okay? Melissa, tell us about your community involvement and tell us a little bit about yourself and advocating for the rights of inmates. I think it's really important for me to start off by saying that I grew up very privileged, right? After immigrating to Canada with my family, my parents had good jobs. They had their own home when I was a very young age. So there were a lot of opportunities that were available to me in this country that were not necessarily available to even some of my family members, making it somewhat easy for me, I guess, to get to where it is that I am. You know, the bio sounds mm-hmm. really good, but, you know, my father is a teacher, right? And mm-hmm. he's instilled certain qualities in me that like academic success was a necessity. and to strive always to do well in school, to always work hard to do better at anything that I'm doing are skills that were instilled in me from a very, very, very young age. So I like to say that in the beginning, just so people know where it is that I'm coming from within my social location, right? Mm-hmm. My first awareness of the Canadian criminal, I'll say justice system in air quotes, because we know it's not a very just system. But my first experience with that system came when I was about nine or 10 years old and my cousin was imprisoned. 
And at the time, I didn't necessarily even understand what jail was or what prison was or what consequences existed for particular types of actions, right? But I just remember back to how difficult his imprisonment was on his mother and on his younger sibling and the role that my family played in supporting her through his imprisonment, right? Mm -hmm. And supporting my younger cousin as well, right? Fast forward to me going to college and wanting to be a child and youth worker and being in a relationship at the time with, he was then my boyfriend, you know, we weren't Muslim, we were young and we were together and he had ended up getting into trouble and going to Tayak. I was in college. Tayak is like a youth, Toronto Youth Assessment Center. Um, So he went there at the age of 17. So I was in college studying child and youth work working in group homes. And I really started to see a connection between what I was experiencing in my co-op with the youth and what my then boyfriend was going through in, you know, just his life and being in, in jail at 17 years old. Right. And I started to feel like, although child and youth work is extremely beneficial, I didn't feel like it offered me the opportunity to, or the power to really change anything when it came to the system and how things were being done. There were things that happened in the particular group home that I had my co-op in that were very disturbing to me. They were problematic. I didn't understand why these were practices that were being put in place, particularly with young people who already had such traumatic lives to begin with, right? They would use really strange, punitive acts to sort of, I guess, in their mind, it was teaching, but, you know, there was a swear jar where the youth, if they swore, they had to put money into the jar. If they didn't follow the rules of the home, they would take their bed and and make them sleep on the floor on a mattress, right? Things like this that I didn't see how that was helping the situation. And I remember being really overwhelmed with emotion and speaking to my teacher and letting her know that this is not, like, I can't do this. I can't be the type of person who does this to anybody else. And she was the one who suggested that maybe I should go into social service work because through social service work, there's more of an opportunity then for me to you know, question policy. And I'm not just working for the system. I have more of an opportunity to try to change things within the system. So that's what I did. I switched. I went, I graduated with my social service work diploma. I worked in the community for 10 years with different organizations some working with people living with HIV and AIDS, particularly individuals in the Black community. I worked with youth from the Black community, helping them with employment. I worked in long-term care. And then I got to a point where I felt like I wanted to go back to school. I had gotten married. I had had children. I had been living as a stay-at-home wife. My partner had gone through a a five-and-a-half-year prison sentence that I supported him through. I had all of these lived experiences, and I felt like I needed to use them in some way to help my community, help the Black community, even more so, I think, than the Muslim community at the time, because I resonated more with being a Black woman than a Black Muslim woman. I was still kind of maturing into that role, right? Because it was new. Wow, that's so interesting, Melissa. Like, I want to hear more (laughs) of your life story. (laughs) Um, That's amazing. And I'm like, to realize that at such an early age is that doesn't happen to everyone. So you're definitely gifted in that sense. Absolutely. You're able to realize and have that guidance at that early age and also wisdom to know that this is what I want to do. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, when we moved to Ottawa, we lived in Ottawa for four years and I felt fulfilled as a mother. I felt fulfilled as a wife. But, you know, walking the stage and getting a bachelor's degree is like something that I always wanted for myself. Right. I didn't necessarily know what I wanted to do <laughs> or like mm-hmm. why I wanted it. I just knew I wanted it as like a personal goal for my life. So when I went back to school as a mature student in 2016, I chose sociology, even though in college, I mean, I hated it. I absolutely, I dropped the course in in college (laughs) and then now I'm a sociologist, which is like Like so ironic, right? But I realize now that those 10 years of lived experience completely changed the way that I came to understand what sociology was trying to show me at the time in college. Mm. It was really hard for me to grasp what they were trying to teach because I hadn't experienced anything. Exactly. I hadn't grown. I didn't really, I just didn't know who I was. But when I went back to school, it was a completely different experience. I knew that I definitely wanted to work with the families of prisoners. And then after doing projects and literature reviews for courses, trying to find information about the Black Canadian experience pertaining to imprisonment and realizing that nobody was talking about this. Non-existent. Absolutely. It did not exist. And that's when I was like, you know what? If anybody should be writing about this, it should be me. So I am going to take this upon myself and I'm going to talk about this because these are conversations that I already have with other Black women in my life who have gone through the same thing, either as wives, sisters, mothers, grandmothers, aunts, but it doesn't seem as though academics had picked up on it as a worthy topic. Topic. It had as a phenomenon, particularly in Mm -hmm. Canada, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the lived experience matters as well, right? And Mm -hmm. sometimes the academics are not looking at that. They don't embody that experience and they just want to kind of go ahead and write about it. And so you had that, of course, and then, you know, the quest to help others. That was, I was listening to, I was thinking about the quest to help others. That's a Mm -hmm. big, right? Um, Melissa, you talked about your cousin's experience. So Mm -hmm. what are some of the inequalities that you have seen in the prisons and particularly towards Muslim men? Have you seen any in your work so far? So my partner and I, we speak at length about the difficulties that he's had on the inside, like getting Islamic material, getting prayer mats, getting books. He has advocated for himself at many provincial jails for things that he knows he has the right to, like halal meals, even access to sufficient and appropriate meals during Ramadan. I mean, we all know how difficult it is to fast during Ramadan on the outside. And you can only imagine how difficult it is to do that in a place like a prison, right? Where it's dirty, it's loud all the time. And then you're a minority in those spaces and people don't necessarily see the significance or understand why you are trying to practice your religion in a place like this. And so the support is not always there. In 2012, during the Harper government's reign, they made a lot of very significant cuts to CSC, Correction Services Canada. And one of the cuts that they made impacted or impacts to this day Muslim prisoners directly. And that is the cut that they made to the chaplaincy program. So the chaplaincy program was beneficial to Muslims because imams were able to go into the prisons. Mm -hmm. They could have jumas in the prison. They could facilitate 
programs on behalf of Muslim prisoners. They could advocate for meals, anything that a Muslim prisoner wants in the prison has to go through a chaplain. So when this chaplaincy program was cut, imams like Yasin Dwyer and Habib Ali, their services were no longer being used throughout the prisons, right? In 2017, oh, wow. there's a global news report, and I'm just going to read a snippet from it. And it said that Imam Yasin Dwyer and Habib Ali, they were hired as contracted by the Islam Care Center. But in 2012, the Stephen Harper government announced it would cut funding to the chaplaincy program significantly. In 2013, it canceled all the contracts of part-time non-Christian chaplains across the country. The remaining chaplains, two of which were non-Christian, were expected to act as interfaith chaplains. So this was really detrimental to the Muslim brothers who were in prison, so much so that a group of prisoners in BC filed a lawsuit against Correction Services Canada, arguing that prisoners do not lose their right to freely express their religious and spiritual beliefs by virtue of their incarceration. Although this lawsuit has gone to the court, this is still a problem that persists to this very day. And it's problematic because of the religious dietary requests. Like I said, they have to go through the chaplains, but now there are far fewer chaplains within the prison. And this problem is just exacerbated when you think about COVID, where now like nobody's going into the prison, right? So when it comes to inequalities and the challenges, particularly challenges faced by Muslim prisoners, it's like you're not getting your halal meal and you don't want to compromise what it is that you're eating and compromise your faith then who do you have to advocate on your behalf that understands why this is significant to you? You know, how many Muslim correctional officers do we have working in the prisons that although they are a part of the system are going to use their faith to say, I understand where this prisoner is coming from. This is important to them. This is their right to have this in here. And although I'm a correctional officer, I'm going to take it upon myself to make sure that they're getting their rights, you know? It's just very difficult for individuals to hold on to the rope of Allah within these spaces. But at the same time, we can see how these spaces still promote a level of God consciousness that is not necessarily available or as evident in the community because of all of the distractions that we have out here. You're in this space where you want to get closer to God, but you're not necessarily being given the materials in order to do so. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Do you think that in this case, like, uh, you know, in your experience, I know that there are some stats that points out that many inmates are accepting Islam in the U.S. Is I'm not sure if that's still that's the case in Canada. And do you what would you think like the reason being? There is a report from the Office of the Correctional Investigator who oversees federal prisons. And what he says in his, Ivan Zinger is the correctional investigator, and what he says in his 2018-2019 report is that, quote, so there has been a disproportionate increase in the number of inmates who self-report their identity to correctional authorities as Muslim. The Muslim inmate population has increased by 74% since 2008-2009 which is from 627 to now 1,089 prisoners in 2018, 2019. 7.73% of the total inmate population is now Muslim. Whether internal or external factors are driving the increase in the number of Muslim inmates is unclear. 
So there has been a significant increase, disproportionate increase, according to the Office of the Correctional Investigator, and they can't explain why this is happening. Now, this is something that I've been interested in for a few years now as to, in Islam, like, we understand the significance of solitude, right, to God consciousness and spiritual growth. You know, even our prophet, peace be upon him, received revelation in the cave. The cave is where he used to go in order to find peace and to think. So prison operates very much in the same way as a space of solitude for many people. The 2020 data from the Ministry of the Solicitor General, who oversees provincial jails, shows that in the Toronto region, 286 prisoners in segregation identified as Muslim. And across all five regions, that number was 788, about 7%. Now, it's important for us to keep in mind that intersectionality plays a part in the double discrimination of Muslim prisoners, as they may also identify as racialized generally and Black specifically. And this would also be a very interesting study to do as well. Like, what are the experiences of Muslim prisoners and specifically Black Muslim prisoners because of those intersecting oppressions? I haven't come across any studies in Canada that look at this. I feel like there's definitely a connection between solitude and spiritual elevation. My partner reverted to Islam when he was in prison. He's not the sole reason that I decided to embrace Islam, though. I think that's important for me to mention. There's always this, when a woman says that she reverted to Islam, people always automatically say like, oh, was it for your, was it to get married or was it for a man, <laughs> right? So it's like, no, it wasn't for him, right? Um, that is just another part that contributed to me reverting. But yeah. just to get back to it, I feel like there is, my partner and I were talking about this last night again, where I was saying, you know, why do you think that people embrace Islam when they're in prison. And he said, for all of the people that he's met while he's been incarcerated who have reverted to Islam after speaking with him, it has always been that they were curious about Islam and had no one to ask. Interesting. They saw mm-hmm. things about Muslims that they found, you know, interesting and pertaining to like even the melodic tone of Quranic recitation, even the different positions that we go through when we're doing prayer, but they never felt like they could ask anyone about it. So there were times where he was in a cell with someone else doing his prayer, them just seeing how he lived, eating halal, washing himself, doing his wudu, and then they would just ask questions. And from the questions, they would get into debates about Islam and Christianity, Islam and Judaism, Islam and different religions. And they were so satisfied with the responses they were getting from him that, mashallah, they would convert to Islam. I feel that when you're in prison and you're at your lowest point, your lowest point socially, right? The act of putting your head on the ground in sujood and praying to something that you can't see and really using your faith to believe that this prayer is going to reach the one who created you and it's going to bring ease to your circumstance, to your situation, I think it's extremely powerful for people who are in carceral environments where these are spaces of oppression. These are places that were built on oppression, places that were built on punishment, places that were built on control. So to get into a position where you're at your humblest, your most vulnerable, putting your head to the ground. And I'm sure all of us have had moments where we just break down and cry and 
may not have been feeling like that's the emotion that was going to come out of us prior to, but after getting into sujood, putting your head on the ground, asking for help, asking for comfort, tears just start to flow, right? I feel like that is a part of the reason, the vulnerability that comes with prayer, the vulnerability that comes with putting your trust in something that you can't see, that is what contributes to prisoners, particularly embracing Islam as opposed to other religions. And while imprisonment has been a test for our family and for my partner, it's also at the same time been a mercy from Allah for him because of how he used him in that place, in those spaces to call people to the deen, right? So when I hear these stories from him of how he's helped people in there, of how people have embraced Islam and and been curious about the deen or have always wanted to talk to a Muslim and never felt like they had the opportunity, how can I be mad that Allah sent him there? How can I be upset? He's doing Allah's work. So it just gives me a different perspective. Yeah, I just think there's a a strong correlation between solitude and spiritual elevation. And and that is why Islam would grow in places like this, because of the way that it connects to, you know, the soul. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that, Melissa. And I 100% agree. I mean, it's to hear this is just so humbling. And it just goes to show you how our experiences are so different here on the outside that we're completely oblivious to what's happening behind closed doors in correctional facilities. I'm curious to know, though, what are your thoughts about, speaking of oppression and injustices, Bell Canada and Bell Let's Talk, recently they've been getting some heat, right? As to, or I guess they were exposed (laughs) Uh in terms of them profiting off of having contracts with Uh correctional facilities. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's hypocrisy, right? So how can you have a campaign that advocates for mental health with Bell Let's Talk, but then the individuals facing extreme mental health conditions, particularly under COVID, where they're isolated in their cells sometimes for 22 hours a day, they get one hour out of the cell, their only time to talk to their families, where their families on the outside have been laid off, they don't have any money, they're the ones who are supposed to provide support, put money on the canteen so that Prisoners can then put money on the phone to contact their families, but you are still making money off of them. That is hypocrisy. That is hypocrisy. The only way for some of these individuals to get through the experience of jail is to talk to people on the outside, to come outside of the jail, outside of their own head and their own circumstance and hear about what their mom is doing, how their moms, you know, how things are going with their cousins, with their sister, to talk to their children. But then at the same time, if you don't have money on your card, you can't do that. So now your mental health is impacted again. How does that work, right? I was so shocked to learn that, first of all, they're still using landlines. Yep. I was like, who has a landline anymore? And And if you use a cell phone, they'll actually cut your call. Exactly. Yeah, I was reading. And on top of that, I was reading how for local calls, it costs around $1 from their card. I guess that's taken. And $30 for a 20-minute long-distance call. Now, mind you, some of them are being sent away from their from where they're living, so they're forced to make those long-distance calls. Yes. I'm baffled. Yes, and most prisons are in rural communities. In Toronto, we have Toronto South, we have East Detention, yeah. 
have, uh, I can't remember the other one in Brampton, but most people, particularly those serving more than two years, are definitely out of city. Like they're not in the city at all, right? And the only way, if your family's not able to come there for physical visits, and especially in COVID, where physical visits are canceled for months at a time, and all you have is phone calls. It's just, (laughs) there's been a lot of advocacy work done around this. I myself have written papers about the hypocrisy of the Bell Let's Talk campaign. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, um, yeah. Just to inform the public, you know, and then the crazy thing too is that so many people donate to this campaign. Yeah. Every year. Yeah. Like when you see the numbers that Bell Canada takes in, even though they have a monopoly on the phone systems in all of the Canadian prisons, it's like, why wouldn't you give phone calls for free? That's like, why wouldn't understand. you give a certain amount? Wow. Every prisoner gets a certain amount of calls for free for the month. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And when they're done, they're done. And now you would have to start paying because people donate millions of dollars wow. to this campaign that's supposed to be in support of mental health. So does that mean then that the mental health of prisoners doesn't count because they are considered to be deviant because they have not followed the so-called rules and laws of society. And now we just ostracize them and they're undeserving of everything, even human rights they don't get. SubhanAllah. And and Melissa, that goes beyond their time in prison too, right? Of course. Mm -hmm. Even when they're, um, yes. And once they return back, the lack of opportunities for them. Of course. Those are another, wow. I don't even know what to say. And let's talk about the mental health initiative that Bell Canada has that is widely used in many institutions, yep. uh, yet no one talks about this inequity. Wow, um, Melissa, I had so much of learning today, and I <laughs> hope that the guest, honestly, I'm not kidding. I would like to wrap this up, and I would like sure. to ask you, what are some things that we can do as responsible Muslim women or citizens Tell us what can we do in regards to this? I think that it comes down to, as Muslims, practicing what we preach. As a revert, I have seen many things in this deen that have astounded me because I never expected Muslims to behave or think in a certain way because of our knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and our purpose in this life. And the goals that we're all supposed to be striving for is to reach Jannah and We're supposed to see the benefit of good deeds. Mm -hmm. Society teaches us, like I said, that once an individual deviates from the norms that have been imposed, they are no longer of us and they deserve to be removed. And as Muslims, we need to start seeing the bigger picture and showing compassion and understanding to prisoners should not take away from the compassion, empathy, and love that is also shown to the victims of their crimes. And sometimes these are victimless crimes that individuals are in prison for. Yeah. Our beloved prophet, peace be upon him, has provided us with many examples of when compassion was shown to people and even animals deemed undeserving and the immense blessings that came with those acts of mercy. We just need to want for our brothers and our sisters who are imprisoned what we would want for ourselves and understand that none of us or our family are immune from imprisonment. And because of the way our community tends to forget about our Muslim brothers and sisters behind bars, imprisonment may be the very thing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings into our lives to humble us and to teach us mercy. There are many brothers 
who have reverted to Islam in prison, who are really looking sincerely to get married and complete half their deen. I have people who reach out to me on social media asking if I know any women who would be interested in marrying a Muslim brother who is serving life in prison. Of course, it would be difficult, but this is where the personal and spiritual growth is. It's in the difficulties, not in the ease, for Allah already tells us that surely the ease will come. So we should be looking at helping and assisting Muslims in prison, either through support, through marriage, through whatever we're able to give, not as a burden and a hindrance on us and what we are attaining or striving to attain on the outside, but as a way for us to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which is supposed to be the ultimate goal of all of us in this life. Thank you so much, Melissa, for your words. We've learned so much from you. I hope this episode was eye-opening for many of us. And may Allah grant us hidayah. May Allah help us help our brothers and sisters behind bars. Thank you so much for joining us. And please do go ahead and connect with us at The Muslim in the Room over on Instagram and let us know your thoughts about today's episode. Until next time, assalamu alaikum. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. We would love to hear your thoughts, so be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts and tell us what you think. And if you haven't already, hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. And to connect with us a little bit more, join us over at Instagram at the handle The Muslim in the Room. Tune in next week for another thought-provoking, or who knows, maybe even a little controversial episode. Until then, take care and assalamu alaikum.